0: Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast.
1: This is episode one hundred and thirty four of the Gate World Podcast. I'm David. I'm Diana. And today we're talking about wormhole physics. We'll be bringing in our uh, longtime co-host, Diane Turnshack. She'll be joining us for the main discussion. We're talking a little bit about wormholes, a little bit about black holes. Just just one of those um, episodes where you uh, come away feeling like, man, I am so much smarter. So, uh, Diana, how you doing?
2: I'm doing really good. Just uh, working, chugging along. How are you doing?
1: Exactly the same. How's the semester going?
2: Spring semester is over, and we're kind of in that lull until tomorrow when we start the summer semester. And this is, uh, I've got a rewrite course, and this is where a lot of the scripts really get torn apart and put back together again. And these kids go on and win a lot of national awards. And then we're also, of course, knee-deep in post-production on Epilogue. Mm -hmm. And then just in case I have an hour or two free every now and then, I'm doing final edits for The Drift.
1: Wow so you're you're packed as usual Just a
2: bit. How's my microphone sam your
1: microphone sounds excellent diana upgraded to audio technica i love that company
2: yes their the technical support there is amazing i didn't even think that kind of technical support existed anymore mhm so yeah. yes i highly recommend them as well so Yes, so Prometheus. You've seen it. I haven't.
1: Definitely one to see in the theaters. Don't go in expecting Alien. I think that's the mantra that everyone's uh, taken away with it. Um, the more I think about it, the less excited I am about it. Though you know, this is a movie that I've been waiting to see. Probably not not as long as you have because I've only been I've only been a fan of the Alien franchise since around two thousand. But yeah, you know, it it answers some questions and it's it, in some ways like. Deliberately, let me just put it this way: If you are expecting to see everything leads, that leads up to the scene where they come onto the bridge and alien and see him sitting in the chair, you're going to be disappointed because that's not how it ends. It ends some of that, but it's inaccurate in very specific ways, which I'll, I'll let you find out in the movie. And I and I'm still today scratching my head trying to figure out: Okay, how does how does what I saw end up as that? That's really probably the biggest disappointment because that's really all I wanted. I didn't want aliens. I didn't want face huggers. That's not what this is. This is space jockey time. Right. And you get that, but you don't get that in the way that adds up to what you think should le- it should leave off at.
2: Well, there's a really interesting interview with uh, the screenwriter, Damon Lindelof, who was from Lost, of course. Of course. Where he talks. It's the Nerdist Writers panel a special interview they did with him, and those podcasts are terrific to listen to, by the way. Mm. He talks about the hazards of a prequel and how um, if you really focus on the main event that opens up what it's a prequel to, you're only going to have disappointment because we already know the Titanic sinks, for instance. That's yeah, true. You know? So his, I mean, his fascination with Alien, the the podcast is kind of funny in a way because he talks about how he's always had the assumption since he was young, uh, watching when he watched Alien for the first time and when he watched um, Blade Runner, that they took place in the same universe. Mm. So he really, Ridley Scott was very surprised when he pitched that and encouraged him, go for it. You know, if that's what you want to have this be a natural progression of or degression of, go for it. So... I think for me, that's I'm going in knowing all of that already, so I'm going to be very curious to see how Earth's society is portrayed in the show.
1: okay. Yeah, because I haven't seen Blade Runner in years, so this is the first I heard of that. I, if there were any elements of Blade Runner, I wouldn't recognize them. So, other than androids, obviously, you know, that's one of the things that they definitely have in common. So, definitely worth going to see. Gotta see it. It's good.
2: I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping to see it tomorrow in 3D IMAX. Excellent. And then there's all sorts of, you know, we've got two new, uh, well, not new, but we've got two science fiction series about to come back, which is exciting. Uh, Eureka's already back, but Warehouse 13 and um, The Alphas are coming back soon. So hopefully we'll have some science fiction-y things to talk about on the television front.
1: Really, the only thing that I'm really watching at the moment is... um... Through the Wormhole with Morgan Freeman, um, science fiction-y, uh, that, mm-hmm. that premiered uh, this past week. So that's on the Science Channel.
2: And then, of course, there is the finale of Game of Thrones.
1: Oh my gosh, it was so delicious. Yes. If you're not watching this show, you gotta check it out. You, got, you gotta give it, give it a shot, because I, I gave it a shot and kind of abandoned it and then took another look at it and was like, oh, okay, and basically absorbed the entire series in about a week and a half, so... Um, definitely worth seeing.
2: Yeah, it's really for those who, of you who are not fans of Sword and Sorcery, that's really not the A-plot in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. It really is character-driven.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Very character-driven, and I think that's why it's been such a success, and the acting is just out of this world.
1: Chapters two and three of my audiobook launched about nine hours ago. So...
2: Yes, uh, downloading them as we speak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not to listen... This makes for great uh, listening while driving.
1: Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about this, so I will give out the web address. Yay! It's www.thomastrilogy.com. That's where you can find it. It's it's actually on GateWorld. It's on a hidden page. Darren, you know, is is giving me room and board basically to to host it. So that's that's what it is. It is yeah. a crossover story. It is not one universe. You'll find elements of many universes in it, <laughs> so that's what it is.
2: But it really is like a radio play on steroids. It's uh, it's such a audio immersive experience with the sound effects and the music and the fact they have many actors, including um we lent you one of our actors yes. nathan shelton who is one of the stars in epilogue and he was in apollo as well
1: he was good
2: yes nathan is very talented
1: he is very talented he makes the rest of us look bad <laughs> was like we finished recording and i was like holy cow this guy's awesome
2: yeah, Nathan is awesome in more than one way. He also is quite the makeup effects artist. Uh, he knows uh, a lot of the big effects artists out in L.A., and he does the makeup effects for Epilogue. Really? So, yes, you'll get to see some wonderful bubonic plague uh, people. He did some hardcore research, and it was phenomenally realistic looking, and it had to be because we were shooting it digital. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Nathan is extremely talented. He's a great guy. I've known him off and on for, my goodness, 13, 14 years now. Holy cow. Yeah, we have both done theater stuff together, and then he took some classes with me, some of my screenwriting classes, and he was a finalist in the, uh, the London Film Festival for a screenplay he wrote. He's a good writer, too. Wow. He's not a jack of many trades. He is a master of several trades, significantly so, so... Yeah, I think people will get a kick listen out, listening to him in, in your, your Thomas trilogy.
1: Very good. Well, let's go ahead and see what Diane is up to.
0: The main discussion.
1: For our main discussion this week, we welcome back a very special guest, Diane Turnshek, astronomy instructor and outreach coordinator at Carnegie Mellon University's physics department. Diane, good to have you back.
0: Hi, David. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: You are always welcome. So Diane and Diana and David, I think we're asking a lot out of our listeners at this point. Here, we're just missing Darren.
2: Oh, there you go. But you know, we got three of us with D's, so just put on the goggles, and we'll have a little 3D, 3D. discussion here. So you two knew each other before? Right, we did it at Seton Hill. Okay, Diane okay. was my mentor. Oh, really? Yes, she was. She was one of my two mentors when I was at Seton Hill University in the graduate uh, writing popular fiction program. So you guys have known each other for years. Yes. I think I was
0: doing that starting nine years ago, and I had perhaps 30 grad students in that time. And, of course, you were my favorite one. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's it's true because we kept up. I mean... Yeah, it's really wonderful that we were able to keep in touch and really work with each other.
2: Are you, you, and you've been a huge help to me, absolutely. As far as just looking at the bigger picture, that was—I feel like I had the best deal out of, out of all the students at Seton Hill, to be honest. As far as my mentors were concerned, because of oh, yeah. you and because of Timmons. Yeah, Timmons yeah. I
0: Asias, mean, he's yes. wonderful,
2: amazing. But the both of you were great in different ways. You are so good at looking at the character-driven elements. For somebody who is so into the hard scientists, I always found that fascinating about you, that you, you would always <laughs> hone in on the character element of it and how that should drive the story. And trust me when I say what you taught me has now gone on to hundreds of students here at Missouri State. Aww. So it's all your fault, Diane.
0: Oh, nice! Yeah, I really like consistency, and I think that came from the scientist in me. Is this consistency in the character development is uh, really important? And I think consistency in science is what it's all about. So that's where it came from.
1: It's been about a year since we've had you on the show. What have you been up to?
0: Oh my goodness! Let's see. Um... So I was just teaching astronomy all over. I think last time we talked, I yes. was teaching at uh, St. Vincent and uh, CCAC, Chatham and Carlo. I've taught at Pitt. I've taught at um, Sinclair Community College mm. in Dayton, Ohio, and Carnegie Mellon. Like, I just taught all over. And, and of course, Seton Hill in the uh, in the English department. But... Now I have a full-time job. I'm the outreach coordinator. So that means uh, extending the bounds of the university to the community in any way that I interpret that. So sometimes I send groups of physicists out to schools. Sometimes we bring students onto campus. Sometimes we set up special events like the uh, Transit of Venus special event. That was lots of fun last week. Um, There's a fence at Carnegie Mellon that students paint regularly between midnight and 6 a.m. I think there's a there's an object at most universities that people paint. I know there's a rock at one university. Different universities have objects that are painted by the students. Well, we painted it yellow with black dots on it for the transit of Venus. <laughs> We bought 250 Eclipse glasses and passed them all out for people that came in the total socked-in black clouds. <laughs> there was no hope of seeing the sun, and we still got over 250 people show up. Wow. Wonderful. I mean, I talked myself hoarse. I had so much fun. I mean, a lot of connections for you know, future outreach things. But it just it – was, it was a lot of fun. And then we went inside and watched the NASA live feed from Hawaii. But 250 people – I I put a rain date on it. The rain date was December eleventh, twenty one
2: seventeen. There you go. I'll I'll be there for that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, but I'm I'm having fun. It's the kind of thing that I really enjoy. I podcast on three hundred and sixty five days of astronomy, and I just I'm writing popular science articles and sending them out. I'll tell you when they get published.
1: (laughs) Mm, Good.
2: Terrific.
0: Suited for what I like to do, so i 'm really happy
2: there and I understand you're also dabbling in the science fiction realms oh yeah i keep I keep
0: my hands in i 'm teaching physics and science fiction at the University of Pittsburgh, which are big classes because it 's for non science majors and i 'll tell you physics and science fiction sounds a lot easier than chemistry. <laughs>
2: straight physics mm. so so i mean what what does the course states. entail are they uh having to read science fiction and science textbooks or yes
0: i i used current stories and the textbook was fantastic voyages
2: Ooh. so
0: that's Dubik, Mosier, and moss the authors um it's learning science fiction through science fiction films. The textbook was films, but we read stories. We just right. read lots and lots of short stories. So we covered time travel and we covered nanotechnology and mm. robots. We went into aliens and the possible ways of detecting aliens and exosolar planets. And of course, I love my astronomy stuff. So we did black holes and wormholes. Yeah, <laughs> mm. uh, it's. It was a very interesting class. I had um, Heather Knight, who who is called Marilyn Monrobot, came and gave a lecture. <laughs> she's amazing. She's she's.
2: I've never heard of her.
0: Oh yeah, she gave a TED talk on robots, and she has she actually bought her own robot that she was taking around to all the like late night TV shows. She fell in love with her robot, and she bought him. And she said, "That's why I
2: don't have a car." <laughs>
0: So. Oh, See, and I geez. thought you were going to say,
2: that's why I don't have a man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's so small. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. So
0: but- we, had, we had good times. Um, I also have two student-taught courses at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, I'm the faculty advisor for these Stucos, they're called. And one is on mythology and one is on science fiction, which they mm. tried to cover everything about science fiction in a one-credit class. <laughs> in one, one semester <laughs> yeah they did wow. they did all right but it was it was pretty far reaching
2: <laughs> yeah i would say so you can't really you can't hover very long on one particular subgenre with a one credit right. course like that
0: and uh, they were and, trying to do writing as well as reading oh my well gosh as, yeah they just and all the movies and all the other that's types just not of media yeah yeah it wasn't possible but they're going to try again in the fall with a slightly different schedule
2: so, um, did you see any good stories come out of the class? Anything, any particular trends that you see happening with young people in regards to science fiction right now?
0: Um, mostly, the young people that, whose stories I read a lot are my Alpha students, the Alpha workshop that happens every summer. And that's science fiction, fantasy, and horror, but they're mostly writing fantasy because Tamara Pierce comes every year. Mm-hmm. So, this year we have kids Johnson and Kat Valente and John Joseph Adams are guests along with Tamara Pierce. Sounds great. Those students are almost all writing fantasy. The ones that write science fiction, they shy away because they don't know enough science. And that's one of my stomping grounds. I definitely always try to fill them in on whatever they want to know, you know, whatever mm-hmm. your story's about, whatever kind of science your story's about, I can help you with it. So.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, teach a genre writing for television and film class every spring, and when we get to the science fiction and fantasy module, it's a four-week-long module, um, they have a choice of writing either a television pilot or a uh, screenplay proposal, and it is the one genre that every, every single student, there's like 30 students in this class, but every year, without fail, they all lean towards television nobody wants to write a science fiction film they all want to write a science fiction television series and i really wonder what that says about the genre at least in regards to the visual medium
1: well you know the thing with sci-fi film is really any film in terms of how i look at it is you know sci-fi is such intense stuff you know there's a lot of stuff going on you want to shoe in the characters but it's you also have to share the time with You know, the the science aspect, you know, the the story and plots and so many sci fi films just fall just they just fall short. And then you turn around and you look at sci fi TV where they have time to go into all the little quirks and, you know, details. And you think you think that's part of what it really is, Diana, Or, or do you think that there's something else going on there?
2: Well, I mean, television is definitely like a great TV series. is like a long Russian novel. Yeah. You know, wouldn't you agree, (laughs) Diane? Yeah,
0: you have to have space for the world building. It's hard because there's a lot that you have to get your – audience to understand about mm-hmm. your particular scenario mm-hmm. before you go into it mm-hmm. with the rest of the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why that's why the novella is perhaps the best length for science fiction written word. It's better than short story, because short story, it's a lot to cram in there. But yeah. in a novella, you've got the length to fully develop your, your whole world and then have something happen in it with mm-hmm. characters that you feel like you know. But I think it's the same way with the television series you have the time.
1: Mm-hmm. You have the
0: time to explore and experiment, and each individual aspect can be a different show. Yeah. So you can, you can um, really develop it that way. But the movie, yeah, unless you're doing a movie after a television series, which
2: – With a setup, yeah.
0: Yeah, which we've yeah. come to know and love.
2: Or your mm-hmm. community and you do six, six seasons in a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, speaking of series, we understand you finished watching Stargate Universe. <laughs> yes, finally. We we kept up
0: pretty good with Universe, but it's still taking us a while to finish watching Stargate Atlantis. We're enjoying and savoring, perhaps, mm-hmm. every single episode. Uh, we make like a big dessert. And all <laughs> and watch. Right. Uh, you got sweet with sweet. And you know, there's two
2: Stargate SG-1 movies to watch also besides the original movie. Right. Art of Truth and Continuum.
0: We have a lot to go still. Uh, So
2: what did you think of uh, how, I mean, Universe, especially in that last handful of episodes, speaking of science, really did start to lean towards science and give a reason for what they were doing. What what were your thoughts and reactions to all that? Yeah,
0: thank you, John Scalzi, for one.
2: Yeah. Mm. He was
0: trying very hard to make sure not to tell me what was going on for one thing. (laughs) Even when I asked him direct questions, I couldn't get direct answers out of him. But everything that was all the dialogue in the show, everything that was said and done was leading towards a very specific conclusion, which we can only now guess at,
2: Mm -hmm. but
0: my guess is involved time travel. Mm. Um, The feeling that the cosmic microwave background radiation has a message in it, has a fingerprint in it of intelligence, uh, just speaks to me that someone had to go back in time and put it there. And Mm -hmm. so now that we know that time travel is possible for other civilizations than ours, um, it's something that it seems like the, the obvious answer to this. And yet, we didn't really discuss this. Even last time when we talked about this, um, do, don't you think time travel is has to be involved?
1: It's definitely a, a Stargate staple, in addition to a sci-fi staple. I mean, that's yeah, that that's one of the things that we um, we really considered when we were throwing this thing back and forth. You know, what could this signal be? You know, and considering the name of the ship, you know, yep. and really the Destinated. the overall message of the show. It's a it's a fairly decent conclusion.
2: Yeah. It's the most giant of all closed time-like curves, basically. hmm You know, you get into Godel's theories. But weren't wasn't Godel's um, concepts his, his whole idea of the closed time-like curve basically shot down by Einstein?
0: Yeah, he was before Einstein, and he right. ended up um, – you know, you need to do that in science. You need to – put out your theory and someone else comes along and refines it perhaps not shot down but refined
2: mm.
0: by Einstein's suppositions yeah hmm. that's that's the way science goes it's uh up two steps and back one step and then up two steps and back one step and mm. eventually coming to conclusions that better represent the universe Carl Sagan his contact the book published in 1985 Mm. has some really interesting things in it i mean he did a good job of describing wormholes and time travel without having anything be contrary to what people knew at the time and the film like his film was 1997 but yes the hugo winning film how many times have you watched that with jodie
2: foster I love it. I mean, in the book, I don't know if you remember, but Contact was kind of like a a model book for me when I was in grad school. It's a great book. The book is ten times better than the movie, and the movie's great. But, again, you're talking theory. There's no way to prove or disprove anything.
0: Well, there's no observational evidence of wormholes, I'll give you that. But it's all theory. It's got to be theory. You know, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson who said things that makes sense, when you think of that phrase, it makes sense, it used to be that we could use our senses to figure out what made sense, you could touch and see and taste things, but nowadays, mathematical modeling, there you go, Mm -hmm. and still there's some physical intuition that people who do this kind of research have when they get to the bottom of their equations and they, I don't know, divide through by zero at the singularity point. they have physical intuition of what these equations mean. Yes, this traversable wormholes. there's nothing that says they can't be in physics. You can work through equations, you can come up with um, solutions for Einstein's field equations, and you know, these wormholes they either connect our universe to another universe or they connect two distant places in our universe and each one of those solutions, einstein's field equations they're they're topologically different but that the the field equations themselves don't constrain that top, topological solution you can have those those work yeah <laughs> it does work out there are some solutions the first ones that people looked at like the schwarzschild solution that represents a wormhole but those didn't work out. Um, The Einstein Rosen Bridge, that's a 1935 paper that Mm -hmm. Einstein and Rosen put out. Um, Those were like, you go in a black hole, you come out a white hole. That's a pathway, a conduit from one place and one time to another possible place in time. Um, Those didn't work out. Wheeler, John Wheeler in uh, 1962 said, yeah, those are unstable. And he had some really good reasons why. That was in 1962, and then he came up with the ideas of traversable wormholes. So he said the Schwarzschild wormholes problems, 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 tidal forces, and that's you know that's incredible tidal for forces uh, unless they're really big. If you have a wormhole that's 10 to the fourth solar masses, and the circumference of it is something like 10 to the 5th kilometers, then the tidal forces are okay. But I don't think we're talking about something that huge, especially if we're talking about constructing something.
1: So you're saying that something the size of a Stargate would probably tear us to bits?
0: With a Schwarzschild wormhole it would. But this is just one solution for the Einstein equations. This kind, these Schwarzschild wormholes are also they're, they're not static they're dynamic, so they expand and then contract again. And mm-hmm. they do that so fast that a photon wouldn't even, be a, it wouldn't even be able to go through. They wouldn't even make it through one photon traveling at the speed of light. It wouldn't be fast enough to go through. They, they call it the cat flap phenomenon, where just the disturbance of it going through would pull the tail shut on it. Hmm. <laughs> and also, you get little small perturbations, like one wave packet of light falling on it would just close it. So those were
2: just not stable but then traversable wormholes. Now, that's kind of cool, the ideas of those. But are they one-way? I mean, that's one of the things that I've never quite wrapped my head around is why in Stargate these are one-way wormholes.
1: Well, you know, that goes back to Dean Devlin. That was a story point.
2: But did that derive somewhere from something in theoretical astrophysics, or is that just something that uh, that is purely fiction, Diane?
0: No, that's one way. They're one way. This is how they're designed. Why? <laughs> I love like um, asking that question. <laughs> so if you have one that you're constructing, um, the method of construction is kind of cute. Um, you would go down into the quantum foam and pluck out a wormhole to start. And this is submicroscopic, quantum mechanical space-time foam. Mm. We're talking about at a Planck length, which is... 1.6 times 10 to the minus 35 meters, the length at which classical ideas about gravity and space-time cease to be valid. Quantum quantum effects take over; they dominate. Mm. So it's it's the smallest unit of length that has any meaning at all. About 10 to the negative 20 times the size of a proton. So really, really small. Tiny. <laughs> yeah, let me just there. pull out my magnifying glass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where did I leave that proton?
0: Yeah. You, <laughs> grab it, this this wormhole, and you pluck it out, you enlarge it, and you move the openings around the universe until you've got it to the right size and shape and in the right place, and then you've got your wormhole. The thing is you've got to stabilize it, you got to enlarge it and stabilize it, and that requires um, some special, special things that would mean that it could only be a one-way trip. So. You know, we don't we don't actually have a theory of quantum gravity yet. So, a lot beyond being able to say it's possible, the the further analysis re- really requires this reliable understanding of quantum gravity. Um, tiny wormholes could appear and disappear spontaneously at this little Planck length. It's something that's been proposed for a really long time. I think mathematically they were proposed in 1921 and then named wormholes by, by John Wheeler in 1957. But the actual stabilizing them, um, that's problematic. <laughs> it's mm. not something that could be ruled out by an advanced civilization, though. Um, the, the tidal forces those are the same things you have when you when you have black holes you you have differential gravitational forces working more so it's pulling more on your feet than your head if you were falling into a black hole this is the spaghettification factor the mm. um have you ever seen those sculptures um what's the the walking man it's it's Giacometti uh the swiss sculptor. it makes those long skinny guys mm. that's that's what you would look like going into a black hole so this hmm. coming up to the event horizon would do that to you. So I remember horizon, that
1: from, did you did you see through the wormhole? Do you watch that?
0: I saw part of it until yeah. I got to the point where I was like, um, wow, this is just too beautiful. <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah, they discussed
1: no. that, like getting nearer to a black hole, how how you would like stretch, you know? I mean, it's it has to do with perspective, doesn't it? Like whether you're viewing it from the outside or whether you're the you're the one getting sucked in.
0: Yeah, that makes a difference. If you're watching someone fall into a black hole, you see them go closer and closer, and slow and down closer and slow down, and then stop right yeah. at the event horizon. Yeah. Whereas if you're falling in a black hole, yeah, you just fall in. Yeah, <laughs> you just fall straight in. <laughs> so you're uh, you're you don't have any of that sense of slowing or halting at all. Mm. You just go right in. Um, the the singularity is at the very center of the black hole, so passing the event horizon um, wouldn't feel, it's not like it's a physical thing, you just wouldn't feel different, you'd just fall in, but by the time you got to that stage, you would have been pulled apart. I mean, you pulled apart, and then your atoms would be pulled apart, and then your subatomic particles would be pulled apart, and so the, the things that fall in a black hole contain no information, they're just... They're just lost. The smallest part of subatomic particles. Yeah, it's all lost. Couldn't do much with that.
2: Dematerialization, like they said, which is what how they refer to it in Stargate, and then you're rematerialized out the other side. I mean, if it, if you're using alien technology, I suppose that anything is possible. But you know, how how off the ramp is that kind of concept compared to what you're saying about? Mm-hmm dematerializing and then that's it good night irene
0: oh yeah no i wasn't thinking that dematerializing would be part of this wormhole process you would step through and just continue through the conduit which would be held open for you oh, okay and go out the other end and to an observer in a, in a different frame of reference an observer watching you it would look like you step in one end and out the other end right hmm. for, for you the travel may be seem instantaneous or depending on the length of the wormhole it may v- Feel like it takes a while.
2: Hmm. This was always one of the discrepancies with the series, I'm afraid. Yeah, because people yeah. walking through it would be instantaneous. But then when they'd send the map through you would have Walter. The time whoever, delay or yeah. it would be like two seconds, three seconds, et cetera. So yeah. I've always just assumed it has something to do with biological matter versus you know, and they also had, you know, the, the wormhole travel effect,
1: which was, you know, so much more interesting than them just stepping through it, you know. So you got the perception that, that the observer was witnessing this as well, when in fact it was just kind of a, a story point, you know. You had a couple of episodes out there which literally showed, like, I remember uh, Shades of Grey, you know, where where Jack is dismissed from the SGC. You see him enter the Stargate and exit just about as fast. And I think that that's really how, you know, that mm-hmm. that's really how it, it more or less probably worked but my my big concern is is one of energy um Mm -hmm. if we were able to do this if we were able to harness this kind of this kind of technology um how much power are we talking about here in stabilizing something like this
0: (laughs) well if you have a time independent radial electric or magnetic field threading through the wormhole that is what would stabilize it, and that would have to be continuous, and that would have to be extensive. Um, can be done theoretically, can be done, but you've got exotic matter in there, and then you've got this material that would have to hold open the the wormhole, and you don't want anybody to touch that matter, <laughs> so okay. you'd have to keep them apart from the walls. Uh, walls is a really loose term here and so not only would you have to hold the wormhole open and and stabilize it and keep it enlarged but then you have to keep the people safe that are traveling through it mm-hmm. so i know in sagan's contact he he passed a vacuum tube down the wormhole and he and he used the stresses in the tube to hold the exotic matter or the the wormhole material out um, that's one way of doing it you could do that Um, or or it may be that actually as you're traveling through it may be that the material that holds the wormhole open is weakly interacting it could be like neutrinos it could just pass through the traveler and not have any effect on them so I mean neutrinos are so weakly interacting you can pass through light years of lead and like the stream of neutrinos will still go through Um, so the traveler might not have any harm by those particular things. But energy constraints, energy constraints, you have to assume that anyone who could pluck a wormhole out of the quantum yeah. foam has the energy
2: to, to do this. Well, to that's what the comes in with the uh, oh, yeah. series, the franchise. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of another series that had a, a stable wormhole that uh, went both ways, and that's Deep Space 9 mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and all in that there was nothing. It just looked like a hole that you went through with the ship, but it was not instantaneous that you were out the other side. There was a conduit. There was an Mm -hmm. actual tunnel, exactly a conduit. Um, But it went both ways. And, you know, the Star Trek franchise was often pretty good about bringing in serious science experts as well. So it's just interesting to hear a different perspective on one-way travel versus both ways.
1: That was also a naturally occurring... Fun- well, I mean, it, in terms of, like, not the beings that were inside of it, but it, it, they didn't have to create it every time. All the, the, the wormhole just recognized that there was something that wanted in, and it would open. Right.
2: Hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Both ways. In the Alpha Quadric and the, um, the Gamma Quadric. Diane, as crazy as this question may sound, is there any actual work being done in regards to figuring out a way to observe for instance black holes or or um or is it just all staying theoretical right now as far as well, wormholes we, and black holes
0: we can observe black holes all the time i mean you don't observe the black hole itself you right. observe the gravitational effects of the black hole but we mm. know there are black holes there are stellar black holes there are Black holes, supermassive black holes, almost in every galaxy, every massive galaxy. So um, you can see stars even in the center of our galaxy, not in the visual, but if you look in other wavelengths of light, you can see stars whipping around and whipping around, nothing. Yeah. You just use Kepler's laws, and you can figure out what the mass of that nothing is, and it's three million solar masses. Wow. So, yeah, there's a black hole there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we don't, we don't actually have to see light coming from a black hole which you can't to see a black hole you can see sometimes x-rays off the accretion disk that's falling matter falling into the black hole and there's, there's various ways to find it and certainly yes there's lots of um, actual observational work being done along with the theoretical work and Tiziana Di Matteo is one of the black hole researchers at Carnegie Mellon but she's more in the modeling aspects of it and theoretical computations Um, But Hmm. there's lots of people working on that, and even wormholes. I mean, people are continuously – I mean, there's this paper. Um, I know this one isn't particularly recent, but it's a wonderful paper if anybody wants to look it up. It's Michael Morris and Kip Thorne, the American Journal of Physics. It's a 1988 paper, but it's just wonderful. Here's a compendium of everything we know so far. So – very, very nice. And then, of course, they block out. Here's the part with equations and here's the part with just text and descriptions. So anybody can read it. Just, you know, you can flip through the other pages. Hmm. Um, All right. I know there's uh, the one book that I just love, um, Paul N- Nahan. It's Time Machines, but he's got chapters on wormholes because that's really where you would start if you wanted to go with a time machine. There are many different kinds of time machines, but the ones I think featuring wormholes work the best. And
1: you mean in terms of the most pl- in terms of plausibility?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That's a 1988 book, but still, um, plausibility for sure. Mm-hmm. With with a time machine, you just take the wormhole, and you can do one of two things. Using special relativity. You either take one end and put it near a neutron star or a black hole or even a white dwarf where time is passing slower and just leave it there for a while. So one end time is passing at a different rate than the other end and then you bring it back together and you step in one end, step out into the past. (laughs) pretty simple you can never go back before the time machine was invented though with that kind or you could also you could before you enlarge the wormhole you could run one end in a particle accelerator like just attach it and make it go round and round and round and round very fast close to the speed of light which also has the same effect with special relativity of making time pass slower for that end so and then enlarge it afterwards
2: Well, let's put it this way. I don't think it's going to be invented in our timelines because I would say to you, all right, let's (laughs) let's prove time travel and let's all agree that if one of us invents it like they did in the Big Bang Theory apparently, we'll all come back right now, five seconds from now. Ready? Yeah, Yeah. I know they tried okay, the time traveler convention
0: yeah. in MIT a few years ago. Yeah. I'm I still going to go
2: to that, but I just, I didn't get to it the first time I had the chance when it was actually in my timeline. Did you guys <laughs> see that photo that recently came out from a Charlie Chaplin film of mm-hmm. a woman in the background holding what looks like a cell phone? And this is like yeah. the 19, I don't know, aughts or tens or something it, like that. It was
0: certainly in black and white. Yeah, it was a, It was one of those ear horns. I mean, when they really closed up on it and they compared it to what it, what an ear mm-hmm. horn looks like, she was just holding that thing where you listen. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine how those worked. Really, they must not have worked very well.
2: So, what's coming up as far as astronomical events that we can our listeners could get their telescopes out of their garages and dust them off and get ready to see.
0: So, it's not a telescopic event, but the next thing that we're going to try to do big is the Perseid meteor shower. Oh. It's all get always August 12th and 13th. And it's the brightest it's the brightest one. You have to look towards the constellation Perseus and that's where they seem to be coming out of. That's why they call it that. It has really nothing to do with the constellation. It's just that that's the direction that the the meteors look like they're
2: streaking away from okay that's the southern sky or no that's the we the, can see that in the northern hemisphere northern no but it's uh if you're standing oh. in the northern hemisphere which way would you look for the constellation
0: um it'll it'll vary throughout the night so it'll rise and cross the sky and set it's a seasonal constellation not a circumpolar one got it so um, yeah, southern. I guess at the highest point that Perseus is up. Um, I always use heavens-above.com. That's my favorite site to go. Like it's it's a planetarium program where you could just say on August 12th, what will the sky look like? <laughs> from, oh, from so you can day. calculate it at any any time of day. So wonderful,
2: heavens-above.com. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: That's my favorite, and you could put in your
2: your name of your nearest city. That's the easy way, or your.
1: Okay. We'll be sure to make that available in the notes.
2: Yes, definitely. That's very, very cool. There's a lot of wonderful iPhone apps. Out oh
1: my! I was about to to mention oh, planets.
0: God. Oh, I just did. I looked. I well, I I had Venus transit on my phone. That would have been nice. <laughs> if they had, if if we had actually seen it, you could have tapped your phone, and it would have recorded. The, everybody around the world um, recorded the times of transit, which is actually how they originally determined the distance to the sun, not with iPhones, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, in the 1700s, various people went around the world, and they timed the transit, and just triangulation, it's, it's mm-hmm. angle-side angle. If they Fantastic. knew how far apart the teams were, they could tell how far it was to the sun, within 1% accuracy, too. That was very cool.
2: Very, very really cool. Yeah, SkyView is another very good app. There's a free version of it, and uh, you can literally just put this thing on and hold your iPhone up if you're curious about, you know, what's that constellation or what's that light in the sky, and it'll tell you what constellation is. it is. It'll tell you where uh, the International Space Station is, where Hubble is at any given time. It's a lot of fun. So that's yeah. a good freebie as well.
0: Yeah, SkyView free. I got that on. I got Star Guide. Oh,
2: yep. planets <laughs> yeah 3d sun is pretty cool also if you're into the solar activity stuff oh yeah that tells you what's going on with solar flares
0: so. i just got my iphone recently so oh I my god, god diane you hit apps. the 21st
2: century you got an iphone oh my god
1: welcome
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, what else is going on there's a total solar eclipse in november 13. how about that for super viewing you just have to go to australia oh it's down there <laughs> yeah that's okay it's northern extreme northern australia and the southern pacific so um you know if you're in new zealand and other parts of australia you'll see it as a partial eclipse but a partial eclipse that's just doesn't cut it you got to go for the total solar eclipse the one that you know the sky gets dark stars come out animals go to roost it gets cold i mean you could see the corona i mean that's that's the one people should put that on there i have to do this in my lifetime list mm-hmm. so if it's mm. not that one across crosses the united states the one in 2017 this is the entire united states the whole path goes from somewhere up in the northwestern part all the way, through, and i think it comes out in georgia but that's a date that you should definitely you know Ask
2: Are your significant other. <laughs> yeah, if we <you> don't to <laughs> travel, we could just go there right now. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, Diane, it's been awesome to talk to you. Glad to have you with us again.
0: Yeah, I love coming on here and talking.
2: It's great.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right.
1: Well, hopefully it won't be too long before we have you back. So promise you'll be back real soon.
0: I will. Just give me a buzz. Thanks so much. Thanks Thank guys. you. Bye, guys. You are listening to the GateWorld Podcast.
1: Thanks again to Diane Turncheck for joining us in this episode. Man, that was um, a pretty heady discussion, man. When we bring her in, I know I'm going to walk away feeling, you know... Just so much more intelligent. Yeah, she you know? is
2: definitely way smarter than either of us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> quite a yeah. little Stargate there. Yeah, absolutely. She's
1: thrown in the math, and I'm like, oh my god, I have no idea what those equations are.
2: Yep, she's our own living, breathing Sam Carter. She really is. Mm-hmm. No,
1: absolutely. Um, and I just, I just love having her on. But every time I feel like I'm having her on, I feel like I'm, I'm borrowing her from you know some important experiment that she's working on, or you know education. It, you know, it's. It's always just cool to have her back, so I'm I'm glad we were able to get her. So Indeed. And this was the first time we had the two of you on.
2: Yes, that's right, actually. So. That's right. Yeah. But Diane and I go way back and I've always been in awe of her scientific mind, but also as a writer and also as a mentor to other writers. She's she's an incredible she's very much the nurturing soul for yeah. all sorts of folks.
1: One of the things that you said in the main discussion that I kind of that I kind of keyed in on was that, you know, she's She's uh, she looks for the science, you know, and, and mm-hmm. making sure that it's accurate, but also keys in on the characters. I think is oh, what you yes. said.
2: Yeah, she's very into the character-driven story, which
1: is a, which is an excellent combination. Yep. You know,
2: yeah, so. I'm mean, very fortunate to have made her acquaintance when mm-hmm. I was t- t- doing my grad school work. Definitely, so onward and upward.
1: Absolutely, uh, can't
2: Absolutely. wait to see you.
1: Yeah, um, let us let us know what you think in the in the next show. So we'll, we'll If I can wait those... that long. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you'll have to just. I mean, I I will know obviously sooner, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm very interested to hear what you had to say. So. And some um, of the
2: Stargate books will be coming out soon, so that'll be fun. We can get into some conversation about that. Oceans of Dust should be coming out soon. We're hoping to have
1: an author on in the future. We'll be yeah. talking more about that really soon. Um. Yeah. So we're basically back into the swing of things with the podcast on a, approximately a two-week launch schedule. So I have what. What's the important thing is that I have the tools I need to launch it on on my own. Darren has his hands have come down upon me and blessed me with the ability to launch. So I have I have the launch codes for the podcast, and it's just a matter of uh, editing and hammering them out. So I do. Speaking
2: appreciate- of Darren, yeah. isn't the Stargate Atlantis rewatch going to be starting soon?
1: You need to go to GateWorld.net. It has already started. Cool. Yeah, he posted that earlier today. It's uh, it's on.
2: First season's a lot of fun.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. You know, I was thinking about before I sleep the other day and how much I enjoyed that concept. You know, I just loved Tori Higginson. I loved her, and that episode really, you know, had a lot of interesting things to say about her, and you know, and about you know, it was a great sci-fi idea. Mm-hmm. You know, first time we we came to Atlantis, we didn't make it. So it's just um, it, it's a it's a great. You know, it's not my favorite Stargate, but man, there are some good episodes in there.
2: There's some brilliant episodes. Holy smokes! Absolutely. In fact, I um, I have a very dear friend of mine visiting here, and she had never watched Atlantis, so I showed her the pilot. She really dug it, and she said, "All right, show me like the greatest hits of the series." And I mm. just immediately jumped to that episode next.
1: hmm mm-hmm. No, I mean, absolutely. I just.
2: just Bypassed everything else, went right to it, and that's when you gra- That's when it grabbed her.
1: Well, it, it hangs very well with the pilot, you know.
2: Yes. it is a fun series. I mean, it's uh, you know, it was trying to be something different. I would really like to have been a fly in the wall and known if Brad Wright was trying to make it darker because there were times where it did get darker, mm-hmm. but then there were times that they shied back from that, unlike Stargate Universe.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. We'll never well, know. Well, well, hopefully we'll find out in his autobiography. so Or its equivalent. There you go. So, All right. All right. Well, we will be back on in a couple of weeks or so with another installment. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see because I'm going to be going on vacation fairly shortly here, but we're going to figure something out. So we're not going to leave you guys stranded. Besides, I have to have something to listen to and enjoy myself on the plane. So
2: we'll mm-hmm. make sure that it happens. Well, we do have a couple of uh, things that we've recorded already. In fact, yes, we'll be sharing with all of you to listen to in the weeks to come.
1: Yes, some pretty cool stuff. So we're not just going to throw any old thing at you. There's uh, there's some stuff that we've been that we've been holding on to for a while. um, Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be good. So, again, thank you to Diane Turncheck. And if anyone has feedback to provide, please give us a ring. Area code 951-262-1647. That's the podcast voicemail. Leave a message day or night. You won't wake anyone up. You can also email a short voice message recorded on your computer to webmaster at gateworld.net. That's available to you as well. We really do appreciate all of your feedback. Every listener out there. it's it's uh, it's good to know that the show has uh, audience even after all these years. So Stargate may not be on at the moment, but we're not going anywhere. So. All right, basically all I've got.
2: Yep, that's it. From here too. back to editing the drift and working on epilogue.
1: Sounds good. Thanks for tuning in again for GateWorld.net. I'm David. I'm Diana. And we'll be talking to you really soon on the GateWorld podcast.
2: The world spins And the world spins mad beyond, and the world spins mad beyond, beyond.